Now this morning, we are going to study Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Last time we studied Acts chapter 10, verses uh, 44 to 48, and that gave us the conclusion to the story of the conversion of Cornelius. Then in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, which concludes that story of the conversion of Cornelius, we read of the defense of, Cornelius, uh, of uh, Peter in his action with Cornelius back in the city of Jerusalem. And we only touched on that last, last time. Let's look at it very quickly. Acts 11, 1 to 18. First of all, the charge that's brought against Peter. Verses 1 to 3. Peter gets back in Jerusalem and he's called on the carpet for what he did. And in verse 3, here's the charge. They say to him, you went into Gentiles, to men uncircumcised, to Gentiles, and you did eat with them. And that was verboten for a Jew. An Orthodox Jews simply could not go into the home of the Gentile and could not eat with him. And that was the charge brought against Peter. And now in verses 4 to 17, Peter makes an answer. And there are six steps in that answer. And they're all given to you in that outline I handed back last week. First of all, Peter says, I went to the home of Cornelius very unwillingly. God had to give me a vision. Then secondly, when I did go, the Holy Spirit called me and told me to go in verse 11 and, uh, and uh, told me to now, not to doubt anything. Then third, he said, I took six Jewish brethren with me, which was excellent psychology, so that they would support whatever took place. And then fourth, the angel directed us up to the home of Cornelius, and then step number five, when we got there and I preached the gospel, God authenticated what I did, verses 15, 16, and 17, by giving to the Gentiles the Holy Spirit. And then the last step he makes in the end of verse 17, as much as God gave them the light gift, as much as God accepted them, how could I try to stand against God? Well, it was a powerful argument. It was unanswerable. And so they give the verdict in verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace, glorified God, saying, Then God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto faith. Now, I want to notice one thing, then we're going to pass on to the last part of chapter 11. I want to notice the gift of the Holy Spirit in verses 15, 16, and 17. Will you look with me, please, at these three verses? These are three of the most important verses in the New Testament on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, As I began to speak, says Peter, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning, as on us Jews at Pentecost. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For as much as then as God gave unto them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I? What was I that I could withstand God? And the answer, of course, obvious, I couldn't withstand God. Now, I want you to notice uh, two or three things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice, first of all, that there are two baptisms here. Look at verse 16. Uh, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I happen to believe, and some of you perhaps will disagree, 
but it really won't make any difference. I happen to believe that Christian baptism is not a continuance of the baptism of John, but that wouldn't make any difference. The point I'm making is that there is both a baptism with the Spirit and there's also a water baptism. Both of those are taught in the Bible. John says in John chap Matthew chapter 3, uh, uh, there comes one after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloosen. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There is the distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the uh, 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 water baptism. Both are valid. Both are valid. See, when we come to the New Testament, there are two uses of the word ecclesia. The word ecclesia is the Greek word for church. It's used about 114 times. I happen to be teaching a Sunday school for about uh, class for about uh, 12 weeks, and I'm dealing with this for a couple of Sundays right now. Uh, the word, and I dealt with it, my students, uh, last systematic theology class, dealt with it for about four weeks. When we come to the New Testament, the word church is the translation of the Greek word ekklesia, used about 114 times in the New Testament. Now, it's used uh, in three different ways. First of all, it's used in a uh, non-technical sense. Five times. It's used, uh, for example, in Acts chapter 19, three times, of a mob of pagans that tried to, uh, to stone Paul. The word ecclesia simply means a gathering together, an assembly. And it's used in what we call a secular or non-technical sense five times. So that's from 114 down to 109. Now, in the other 109 cases, it is used in two sentences. It's used about 90 times in the New Testament for a local church. The church in thine house, Philemon 2. The church at Philippi, Philippians 1. The church at Antioch, Acts 13, 1 and 2. In these cases, it refers to a local church. The seven letters are addressed to seven local churches. And the local church is organized. It meets on the first day of the week. It has officers, perhaps elders and deacons. It takes collection. It's involved in missionary service. It is an organization. And most of the use of the word ecclesia are used in that sense of a local church. But there are about 18 or 20 cases in which the word ecclesia is used of, for lack of a better term, what is often called the universal church, the church which is the body of Christ. Paul writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. Now, that cannot be a local church there because Paul was not baptized into the local church at Corinth. So that can't be a local church there. Then he goes on to say in the same chapter that in this church God has set apostles, prophets. But no one local church had all the apostles. No one local church had all the prophets. That use of the word ecclesia in Corinthians and primarily in Ephesians and Colossians refers to the church, the body of Christ. 
Now, that's not an, organi an organization. That's an organism. The local church will not be in heaven. But the church, the body of Christ, Hebrews 12, 23, will be in heaven. We read in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, who will be in heaven. And, and there are four groups in heaven. The triune God, the angels that did not fall, the spirits of just men made perfect, Old Testament saints. And fourth, the church of the firstborn, the assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, that's not a local church because they don't have elders and deacons, and you like this, they don't take collections in heaven. <laughs> and there's no discipline because nobody sins in heaven. That's not a local church. That's the church of the body of Christ. Now, both of these are true. Some of us belong, perhaps, to communions where they recite that the Apostles' Creed. I believe in one holy Catholic church. And when that was first constructed, they added another word. I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, if we understand what that means, those are four good terms. And I try to explain to the students carefully. One holy Catholic apostolic. One unity. We've all been baptized into one body. That's the church, the body of Christ, not the local church. One, one holy, holy. What does that mean? Well, the word holy is connected with the same Greek word that uh, uh, the word holy is hagios, and the word sanctify is hagiazo. And I think that when they framed the Apostles' Creed, and you know it wasn't framed by the Apostles, the present form that we recited in is uh, probably goes back to about 350 A.D. And when they said one holy, by holy they mean sanctified, and I think they meant Hebrews 12, 13, sanctified by the blood of Christ, Hebrews 12, 13. So when they use the word holy, they mean sanctified by the blood of Christ, or we would say saved. How many unsaved people get into the local churches? Well, you know, quite a few of them. I'd say almost 50% of Billy Graham's conversions come from church members. So an unconverted man can get in the local church, but an unconverted man cannot get into the church, the body of Christ. One holy sanctified by the blood of Christ. One holy Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. Universal. This church, the body of Christ, takes in all true believers who have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus, whether down here upon this earth or who have already died and gone to heaven. Hebrews 12, 23. One holy Catholic. Then the old creed had the word apostolic. And that was a good word if we understand what that means. It doesn't refer, I don't believe, to apostolic succession. It refers to the fact that the church is built on apostolic truth. In Ephesians chapter 2, the church is built not only on Jesus, but also on the apostles. Built on Jesus Christ as the foundation. But where do we learn about Jesus? Not an experience not in religious gatherings. We learn about Jesus in the New Testament. And the New Testament was written by apostles, or apostles stood behind the writing, such as Mark. 
And in that sense, we believe in the apostolic church. That is, that the church is founded on the truth that the apostles wrote and now incorporated into the New Testament. So if we understand what that phrase means, that's a great statement. I believe in one unity, holy, sanctified by the blood of Christ, one holy, Catholic, universal, takes in our friends down in South India, takes in believers in Memphis, takes in believers in Hong Kong, takes believers in, uh, who, are in, uh, who are truly saved behind the Iron Curtain. All of us, one in the body of Christ. And Jesus prayed for that. John 17. Those who've been with us on Monday night know that's what we're studying right now. He prayed for the unity of the church. This one, not uniformity, but unity within the body of Christ. One holy Catholic apostolic church. Well, I understand those words. That's a good statement. One unity, all one in Christ. Other sheep have I which are not of this fold. That's Israel. Them also must I bring, and they shall be one. Now, the King James says fold, but it's a different Greek word. Word flock. Other sheep, other sheep, Gentile. Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, Israel. Them also must I bring, and there will be one, not fold, not the reconstituted Israel. The church is not spiritual Israel. Other sheep of I, which are not of this fold, Israel. Them also must I bring, and there will be one flock, the church, the body of Christ. Now, that's an organism. That doesn't have any elders, doesn't have any deacons, doesn't have any pastors. That's the body of Christ. It is sometimes called invisible. And by that term, which I don't use, because people say, well, I belong to the invisible church. That means I don't have to show up on Monday, Sunday morning. So I steer clear of that. Uh, there really isn't a good word except the word universal, I suppose. But, but by that we mean that only God knows who truly has trusted Christ as Savior and is a member of that church. Now, how do I get in the church the body of Christ? Anybody tell me? Baptism, the Holy Spirit. For by one baptism, for by one spirit, not by one water, for by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. That cannot be a local church there. Now, I believe in a local church. I'm strong on that, but that can't be because Paul was not a member of the local church at Corinth. But by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. And we've all been made to drink of one spirit. We've all been made to participate in the blessings of one spirit. What is that body, the church? The church. We've all, all us believers, we have all been baptized. And that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I get into the church, the body of Christ, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I become a member of the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual transplant. Now, you ought to write that down, you see, and unless your memory is a hundred times better than mine, uh, and mine's very poor, you 
bankruptcy. I'm mine for You may not think so, but you loan me some money. You'll find out how poor it is. <laughs> My <laughs> years and years ago, about 25, 26 years ago, uh, I uh, took the, uh, well, the Dale Carnegie course here in town gave to all of us, to our students, uh, that, that one semester course. Now, what is the gentleman name that has it in this city? I believe he's a member of Second Presbyterian Church. Pardon? Uh, Brick Brickle, right. Called the Brickle Institute sometimes. Brick Brickle, right. And uh, so they brought the courses, went down to 1271 Poplar, and I hope by the time I get through this illustration, it's going to be germane. But it was that 1271 Poplar. We had about 60 students in that class, and... Uh, that young fellow by the name of Charlie Abel, a very fine young man, a Christian, eventually was transferred over to Oklahoma City. And um, so they gave this course, and I was the faculty representative in the course, and he was the teacher, and there were 60 students. <clears throat> the first thing that he did was he went around the room and got the names of the 60 students. And then in 15 minutes, he called everyone by the first day. You know, that's one of the things they do. Call everyone by the first name. And uh, they, you know, uh, if the fellow was, they connected the name somehow with the way the fellow looked and his appearance and his style and his hair and so on down the line. And uh, if his name was Grimaldi, Grimaldi, and he didn't have much hair, they think of Baldy, Grimaldi. See, it would be my luck to say, hello, Mr. Baldy. I never could quite get that. <laughs> I did it one time, and I came out real poor, so I decided not to try it. But anyway, he learned it, showed the students, then he got me to do it. It was agonizing, and I did it. And so he took that course, and a lot of it was on memory. How to remember things? Well, about three, about two months after the course was over, uh, Sam Reed, Brother Sam, our bookstore manager, and George Hurd and I went downtown, ate the old Peabody, or not Peabody, the, that cafeteria downtown, Piccadilly, and... And uh, we got through the line, and we ran into the man that taught the course for four months. He was the teacher, and I was the faculty representative. You know what happened? He couldn't think of my name. I couldn't think of his. <laughs> so I did what Babe Ruth did. You know, Babe Ruth never, he never could marry. He said he, everybody was chief to Babe Ruth. Hi, chief. And so that's the way we did it. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and I don't know how he got into this thing, except to say that you ought to put this down. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is it? It's a spiritual transplant. And I'm going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to see that we're not going to finish Acts 11, 19 to 30, but I think this is important. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual transplant. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that spiritual surgical operation by which he takes me out of the old Adam and joins me to the last Adam. First Corinthians 15, 22. For as an Adam, we all die. So in Christ, we're all made alive. So right here this morning, we got uh, 70 men. Every one of us is in one of two people. I'm either identified with the old Adam or I'm identified with the last Adam. Our hymns sing of the second Adam, but that's not biblical. It's the second man, because there's going to be a third man and a fourth man 
and a fifth man, just like the Lord Jesus. But there are only two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam lost, lost my standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He lost. The last Adam won the victory for me out yonder in the wilderness and at the cross. And when I was saved, and I didn't know anything about this till years later, and I didn't feel anything. But in the hour of my conversion, as a boy at the age of 14, in the hour of my conversion, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> the great divine surgeon, performed a surgical, spiritual, surgical operation on me. He cut me out of the old Adam instantaneously, and he joined me to the last Adam. And when I'm joined to the last Adam and to his body, the body of Christ, then his life flows into my life, and his purpose becomes my purpose, and his direction should be my direction. And all that I have as a Christian, what do you have as a Christian? Salvation, joy, purpose, forgiveness of sins, are all those yours as a Christian? Um, I'm a, better start preaching the gospel here then. Now, are those yours as a Christian? What do you have as a Christian? Come on, name some. What are they? Salvation. What else? Peace. Eternal life. Redemption. All of these things. How do I get these things? By being joined to that last Adam. And that takes place in the hour of conversion. In the hour of conversion, the Holy Spirit did four things for me. Regeneration, baptism, indwelling, sealing. Regeneration put me into the family of God. I'm born into the family, just as I was born into the Christ family. I was born again into the family of God, and that gave me a new life. The Holy Spirit gave me new life, eternal life. Secondly, in the hour of conversion, the Holy Spirit did a second thing. That is, he took me out of the last Adam and joined me to, uh, out of the first Adam, joined me to the last Adam. That gave me a new position in Christ. And that's accomplished by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if any man be new creation. What's Romans 8, 1? There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are and again and again, you go through Ephesians, perhaps today, see how many times the Bible uses the word in Ephesians, I am. That's the sum and substance of Paul's theology. In Christ, in who? In him, in Jesus. In, is. How do I get in Christ? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He joins me, that's to Christ. That's a grafting, a spiritual grafting operation. That's a spiritual, surgical operation. It takes me out of the old Adam and joins me to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't feel it. Did you feel it? No, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. Next day, I, I felt joy and peace. And the next day, all, <laughs> all the old dirty cuss words dropped off. And the next day after I was saved and I had lost by that time both my parents, was kind of wandering around, the next day, I remember seeing an old big truck driver crossing the street and, and driving a truck real slowly, and he was singing, Count your many blessings, sing them one 
Now, you know, that had happened over 40 years ago, but I'll still remember that. Because that was a great confirmation. I thought, man, I'm the only Christian. I'd gone to a radically liberal church where they disowned the gospel, disowned an altar call, where they denied the virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus. I had gone to that church all my life, radical church. And had it not been for a lady, an elderly lady in her 70s, a retired Methodist missionary, a godly, godly lady, who sowed the word of God into my soul and heart while I was a boy. Uh, I perhaps would have never been saved, but I thought I was all alone. All my buddies were unsaved. They were really unsaved, you see. I didn't know any Christians. I didn't run in that group. And I didn't think anybody else. And then this, in his providence, God saw to it that I was about ready to cross the street when this truck driver was rolling across, rolling across Alhambra Street, now Alhambra, California, singing, Count Your Many Blessings. Boy, you could hear him for about two blocks, see. <laughs> and that really encouraged me. Well, I said, Lord, there are at least two of us. <laughs> and uh, but I didn't feel anything, but in the hour of conversion, he regenerated me, that gave me a new life. Baptized me, that gave me a new, what? Position in Christ. He indwelt me. Holy Spirit, the hour of conversion, came down and took his permanent, took up his permanent residence in my life never to leave me. Uh, he shall, he has been with you, he shall be in you. John 14, verse 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What know you not that your body is the yeah, permanent residence? Permanent. So when you go to work today, you don't leave him here in the Friday morning class. When you go to work today, the Holy Spirit's living in you he can hear all you say, see, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, see. He knows all your thinking. He's watching all your actions. He's there as the comforter. Now, you know, when we think comforter, we think of somebody that lays us out on the couch and soothes our brow. That's not the idea. We get the word, the Latin derivation, comforter. Fortify, fortify. The Holy Spirit is the one who's come into our lives to fortify us for the temptations of life, for the responsibilities of life as a father, a husband, a worker, whatever it may be, and to encourage me. He's the comforter. And the word would probably been better translated by the simple word helper. There's been a whole lot of scholarly study <coughs> on this word that's translated comforter. And when it's all said and done, I think the vast majority of scholars would agree that if they just translated the word by the word helper, it would have been fairly accurate. That's what the Holy Spirit, he's come in to help me. The Christian life is a supernatural life. What are you by nature? Self-centered, so am I. And the Bible calls us to a supernatural life. The Bible calls us to a servant life to help others and to place their desires and their wants and their ambitions ahead of mine on the cases. And that's hard to do, isn't it? 
That's hard to do, isn't it? Well, it's impossible. See? And that's why I need to help him. Indwell. And then the fourth thing he does is to seal. Holy Spirit seals me. Now, the second thing is he baptized me. What I'm saying is this. Now, will you look here? There are two churches. Now, I'm not talking about denominations. You know that. I'm not talking about Baptists and Methodists. I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ, and the local church. And I ought to be associated with both. <clears throat> I get in the church, the body of Christ, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not a second work of grace. The moment I trust the Lord Jesus, that very moment, the Holy Spirit performs a divine surgical operation and places me into Christ. And I become a member of the body of Christ. And then later on, not very much longer we saw last time, I'm baptized in water. And that water baptism is the initiatory rite by which I am brought into the local church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit brings me into the church, the body of Christ. Water baptism is the initiatory rite which brings me into the local church. And both are valid. Both are necessary. Not necessary to salvation in the second one. But both are proper. I, I to be properly identified with the church, the body of Christ, I can only be identified by one baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the moment I trust Jesus, that very moment, I'm baptized into the body of Christ. And then secondly, maybe the following week, or maybe two weeks later, then I've been a pagan up to this time, outside, no, no concern for God. Then I take an open, bold, public stand for Christ, and I'm baptized in water, and that's the initiatory right into the local church. There are two, I believe, two qualifications for entrance into the local church. Now, these are my convictions. One is a profession of faith in Christ, and the other is water baptism. Now, the church to which I belong is uh, premillennial. This school is premillennial, but that's not a qualification for local church membership. Now, a person that doesn't believe that way and joins it ought to understand that's what the church believes. And ought not to get into controversy about it. But the just two, one is that I truly trust in Christ and I've taken an open, bold, public stand, my faith in the Lord Jesus, by being baptized. So the Lord said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And show that you're making disciples of all nations. Show that you're by two things. Baptizing them, the disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. Baptize them. Now, I had to do it on Sunday afternoon because uh, uh, I happen to be an immersionist and the church which we're a member doesn't have a baptistry. And so I immerse my children and have, uh, I usually have to use a different uh, place. And, uh, so uh, anyway, uh, when I did, I've always spoken on Matthew chapter 28. Now, I've talked to my children. I said, now, you're in Sunday afternoon service. Uh, you've taken, uh, you trusted the Lord Jesus. I've sat down and talked with you. Just because your daddy is a preacher doesn't mean you're a Christian. You've exercised saving faith in Christ and talked to them about it. And then when we had the service, I mentioned there are two things that 
that demonstrate uh, that I'm a disciple of Jesus. First one, at the beginning, is an open, bold, public stand for Christ. I fly my colors. I'm baptized. I'm a disciple of Jesus. In Muslim lands today, a man may profess faith in Christ, and the family doesn't do anything. But when he's baptized, then he's ostracized. Then he's taken an open bold stand for Christ. That's one, not to be repeated. Then after that, day by day, commanding them to observe obedience. That's the daily thing. Fly my colors at the very beginning. Let folk know where I stand. I'm on Christ's side. And then daily follow him, uh, daily obey him, walk in a path of obedience. So there are two baptisms here, the body of Christ and the local church. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a surgical operation. That gets me into what? All right, should we turn the clock back? Can you do that, Mr. Campbell? Turn it back so we can start over again. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that gets me into what? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. How many people are members of the body of Christ? All true believers in the Lord Jesus baptized in the body of Christ. Only one body of Christ in this room. There may be 20 different local churches, but only one body of Christ. And it's the body of Christ, whether we're here or whether we're down at work two hours from now. But it's only a local church when it's assembled. But the body of Christ. I get into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I enter the local church by water baptism, the initiatory rite. That's an organization. The body of Christ is an organism. Doesn't have elders, doesn't have deacons. Um, it's not organized. Doesn't have, you don't exercise discipline in the body of Christ. That's why if I'm a member of one local church, I don't poke my nose into the business of another local church. See? That's the body of Christ. And you don't exercise discipline transculturally into another local church, the body of Christ. Over here is the local church, and that's organized. And that has a pastor, and that has elders and deacons or whatever it may have. And that, that votes and elects, not the body of Christ. The body of Christ doesn't elect. But the local church elects, and it exercises discipline, does the body of Christ. And I get, uh, does the local church. And I get into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I get into the local church, I believe, by profession of faith and by water baptism. Now, the tendency I discover is that uh, you have people who emphasize one and forget the other, see? Now, are you all listening to me on this? Because this happens down the south, it happens on the west coast. Down the south, they're very strong in the local church. Where I come from, out in the west coast, they're strong in the body of Christ. They're both true. But you find some people that, that are very strong on the body of Christ. Every once in a while, they'll, I have some who drive into, my, into Memphis and come to my office and want to talk to me about it. They are, they are members of a tape ministry. 
here in the United States, and up in Savannah or Podunk or wherever it may be, there's no church quite good enough for them. So they meet in the home and listen to a tape. Well, I tell them right off, whatever that is, that's not a local church. You have elders, deacons? No. Organized? No. Uh, do you observe the ordinances? No. Baptism? No. Well, then whatever you have, that's not a local church. And the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And I want to tell you kindly, you're living in sin in that, see? You know, I used to come on real easy on this. I come a little harder now. And uh, when you get hard enough, then the Lord takes you home to heaven. See, but you have people that believe, now listen to me very carefully. You have people who are very strong on the, lo on the body of Christ, and they think nothing of the local church. And so their church tramps. They never settle down anywhere. They're always looking for the perfect church and the perfect pastor. I say, don't get in there, because the moment you get in, it'll be imperfect. You know, as the old saying goes. There's no such thing as the perfect church. No such thing as the perfect pastor. And there is the universal church, the body of Christ, that's true. And all true believers are members, and that's true. But some people just emphasize that. Then, and that I run across a lot of that out the place where I come from, the West Coast. And they float around. And they don't identify the local church, and they don't give to a local church. And uh, so uh, you give. I wasn't looking hard at you about that. I know this. <laughs> I know he does. Then you get over here, you find people who don't believe in the body of Christ at all. They just believe in the local church. See? And for about 15 years in Memphis, they wouldn't let me preach in some of their local churches because I wasn't a member of that local church. And all their thought is is this church, my church, local church, and they're way down at the bottom of a rut and couldn't see that God is working through many avenues. And this is the avenue where my convictions lie, and I believe in this kind of a church, and I believe in this kind of church organization, and this kind of church government, and I believe in these kind of ordinances. These are my convictions. And since they're mine, I believe they're true. But at the same time, I recognize that other people have different convictions and belong to different groups. And that if they are truly trusting the Lord Jesus, although they're not members of my local church, they're members of what? The body of Christ. And I get in one instantaneously, the body of Christ, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I get in the local church, I believe, by water baptism. And there are two baptisms here. And you noticed that, didn't you, in Acts 10? I touched on that. Will you look here? Remember in Acts chapter 10? While Peter was speaking, suddenly Cornelius and, and the members of his household broke out and spoke in tongues, foreign languages. If they spoke in tongues, that meant they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were saved. They had received the Holy Spirit. They had already been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That got them into the church, the body of Christ. And then after that, Peter said, verses 47, 48, what hinders us now from baptizing? And Peter baptized them in water. See? Both baptisms, and they're both valid. One of them gets me into the universal church, 
One is a qualification, I believe, for membership in the local church. And both churches are true in the New Testament. Both baptisms are true. Now notice in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 11, verse 15. He has three synonymous terms. Acts 11, 15, 16, and 17. 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. The Holy Spirit fell on them. That's one term. One term. Verse 16. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the same as verse 15. Holy Spirit fell on them. Verse 17. For as much then as God gave them the what? The light gift. What is the light gift? The gift he gave to us, Jews, he gave to them. What is that light gift? Baptism of the Holy Spirit, or in verse 15, it's what? The Holy Spirit doing what? So there's three synonymous terms. The Holy Spirit fell on them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the light gift. The light gift in verse 17 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He uses three synonymous terms. Now, on that basis, I want you to notice three things, and then we'll just have to close. I want you to notice three things. See, three synonymous terms here. One of them is the Holy Spirit fell on them, and he calls that in verse 16 the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what does he call the baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 17? The like gift. Like means as he gave it to us Jews, he gave it to them. All right, now let's look at three things about that baptism of the Holy Spirit. First one's the end of verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as he did on us at the, at the when? Now, where would that take us back to? That means that that's the first time the baptism with the Holy Spirit ever took place, at the beginning. Nobody was ever baptized by the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. John said in Matthew 3, I baptize you with water. One's coming who will, who will, future tense, baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus said in Acts 1, you, you, stay right here in Jerusalem. You tarry here. You tarry here until you receive the baptism, until you receive the promise of the Father, which, saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days hence. That's the promise of the Father. How many days? Ten. Ten days later, Pentecost, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit into the church, the body of Christ. And that's why I believe the church began at Pentecost. The only way you get into the church is by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When did the baptism of the Holy Spirit first take place? Pentecost at the beginning. How many of you meet to worship on Sunday? Let's see. I'll do that. Now, you know why, don't you? For two reasons. One of them is because Jesus Christ arose on Sunday. Because he arose on Sunday, we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week. But there's a second reason. Fifty days after Jesus arose, 40 days after the Lord Jesus arose, 40 days later, on Thursday, 
He ascended Thursday of the sixth week. Thursday of the sixth week. He ascended into heaven. Ascended into heaven. Ten days later, on Pentecost, Pentecost, 50. In the Old Testament, Leviticus, count seven weeks and add one more. Seven, Sunday to Saturday, one. Sunday to Saturday, two. Sunday to Saturday, three. Sunday to Saturday, four. Sunday to Saturday, five. Sunday to Saturday, six. Sunday to Saturday, seven. One more, 50 Sundays. And on that Sunday, seven weeks plus one day after Jesus arose, on that Sunday, the Holy Spirit came. He didn't come by accident on Sunday. The church was born on Sunday. And we meet on Sunday not only to remember the Lord Jesus in his resurrection, but also because that was the birthday of the church. And we need also to remember that, primarily, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. And the first baptism of the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost, and the church was formed. Notice one other thing, one other thing, well, two other things, quickly. Notice verse 17. Look at your Bible. I'm mentioning three things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First, it first occurred on Pentecost at the beginning, at the end of verse 15. First time it ever occurred. Now it occurs every time a person is saved. First time it ever occurred at Pentecost. Second thing, notice in verse uh, 17, for as much then as God gave them the like gift. What is that like gift? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now you look at it, I'm going to read it. For as much then as God gave them the like gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as he did unto us Jews who believed on the Lord and tarried at an altar. Now, is that what it says? What's the one condition for receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the moment a man believes on Jesus Christ, that moment he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you know what I'm Driving at, end the sentence with a preposition. You know the point to which I'm driving? There's some people that believe. I have some very dear friends. I have some relatives that believe it. Uh, and they believe that a person could be saved here at this point, and then maybe a year or two years later, through agonizing and praying, two years later, they will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of it is that they will speak in an unknown tongue. Now, I have some dear friends who want to make that clear. They're wonderful, devoted Christians. And after I got saved and my parents were dead, why, I used to attend this church for over a year. Fifteen years old, they'd take me on down to the little rescue mission down in Los Angeles. They introduced me to soul winning. You wouldn't believe it. They had a little choir, and I played the violin. My wife won't believe it, because <laughs> my musical ability is zilch. But they taught me what love among the Christians were, and helpfulness, and kindness, and soul winning. But they also believed 
that he got saved here, and then a year or two, maybe five years later, through agony, tarrying, praying, waiting, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the evidence was speaking in tongues. I never believed it then, don't believe it today. I believe <clears throat> that a person is baptized by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ the moment he's saved. Look at verse 16. Is 16 or 17? Look at 17. What is the one condition for receiving the like gift? Yeah, that's a very important passage. I hope you circle or do something. That tells us that we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the like gift, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's probably the clearest verse in the New Testament on that. So the moment I believe on Christ, that very moment, I am baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. Do I feel it? No. Do I get a shock? No. Do the bells start clanging in my head? No. Some of us, you know, are born in great upheaval. Some people are born quietly. The Bible says the wind blows where it wants to. You hear the sound thereof. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't tell where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you all to listen. Just as the wind blows down, for example, in Galveston, where I used to live, sometimes in great cyclonic gales, 95, 100 miles an hour, and I was in one of them, and out on Kansas, Kansas, the plains, they blow very, very quietly. So the Holy Spirit works in our souls in different ways. Some men, perhaps, who've been long away from God in Augustine, who live deep in sin, and God captures them and cultivates faith in their soul, and they trust Christ as Savior, those people are saved in great stormy, cataclysmic conversions. They can point to the hour and the day and the place, and they can remember it in their mind. It was a great cataclysmic experience. So it was with the Apostle Paul. But other people, especially the children that are reared in a Christian home, sometimes have a little difficulty pointing to the exact hour when they're converted. And that's not the important thing. The important thing is that they know right now that they are saved. And I think we can know that. That teaches me two things. First, don't try to ape somebody else's conversion experience. And second, just because you got saved underneath a railroad bridge, don't think everybody's got to be saved that way. Just because you got saved walking forward to an altar, and I walked forward an altar, yet the altar call wasn't known until the 18th century. And Augustine and Martin Luther were saved without walking forward to an altar. So don't think that just because you got saved one day, everybody else got to get saved one day. You were saved by trusting the Lord Jesus as Savior. And when we do that, God joins us eternally to Christ, never to sever that. What is that joining to Christ? What do we call that? Spiritual transplant. What's the biblical term for that spiritual transplant? Baptism. With everybody say it. What is it? All right. One more thing. Look at it. Verse 17. He says, For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us, gave to them Gentiles 
the like gift as he did unto us Jews, who was I to withstand God. Both Jew and Gentile are equal in the body of Christ. The old saying is, the old saying has it, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's level. You know what the, what, you know what the sea level is at the foot of the cross? Zero. Zero. We're all bankrupt sinners when it comes to being saved. We all start at zero. God gives us perfect righteousness. When he brings us into the church, my friend, whether are you listening, whether I'm a man or a woman, whatever may be my background, whether I've been saved one week or 40 years, whatever may be my culture, race, sex, we're all equal in the body of Christ. We all have equal access to God and equal access to spiritual gifts. We're all equal in the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't place in the church ministers of the gospel and apostles and prophets in those days and spiritual gifts. And it doesn't mean that we don't elect officers and we're obligated to show respect and deference to officers in the church but we're all equal, the body of Christ. I've been preaching for 40 years. I have no more access to God than the man here this morning who's been saved only one week. So he says, we believe that they, we shall be saved even as they. Now next week, Acts 11, 19 to 30. I'm all ready this morning, but I'm not going to last another hour. So I won't have to study. I'm all ready next time. Now, will you listen? Then I'll be through. Acts 11, 19 to 30 is one of the gigantic steps of the church. Just as gigantic, for example, as the <clears throat> Reformation. A tremendous step. Acts 11, 19 to 30. And we're going to look at it next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and goodness. We spent time on a subject in which we did not intend to spend time, but we believe a subject that's important. We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast, um, by simple faith in the Lord Jesus, thou hast united each one of us to Christ and to his body, that we are members of Christ, we're members of his body, by that baptism of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that union is indissoluble. Nothing can ever break that. And that union will continue throughout all eternity. We thank you for that. At the same time, our Father, we thank thee that when we are saved, thou dost expect us to identify with the local church and to fellowship with other believers and to be encouraged by other believers and to find a channel of witnessing and of helpfulness through a local church and to support the pastor and to support the officers and to find a place of service and usefulness within the local church. We believe that the one organization thou didst establish for all the church age was not Mid-South Bible College or Young Life or Child Evangelism, though we believe these groups have been used of God. The one organization is the local church. We pray, our Father, we shall be faithful in our churches, 
supporting and praying for our pastor, helping him, encouraging him, uh, supporting other members in that local church and the body of Christ, and finding a place of witnessing and serving through the outreach of that local church. And we pray this in Jesus' name.